Welcome to Rock Album Analysts, your semi-regular podcast where three lifelong friends, rock musicians, and rock fans take an in-depth look at a different rock album each week. This is your host, David Lucarelli. This is John Carson. This is Mike Gavin. Today, we will be taking an in-depth look at Use Your Illusion 2. So that's the blue one. Uh, that's the one that was released with the orange one at midnight roughly 30 years ago. I think they, we just passed the anniversary. Yeah, we did. Uh, and interestingly enough, Use Your Illusion 2 was slightly more popular than Use Your Illusion 1. Uh, that resulted in it debuting at number one, while one debuted at number two. Um, interesting podcast that I discovered since we did use your illusion one, uh, mm -hmm. which is the 33 and a third podcast, which is done on Spotify. They just uh, did a look at Use Your Illusion 1 and 2 that you should check out because friend of the show, Care Lordigan, uh, actually does some of their narration reading for a very pretentious and condescending rock critic who wrote a book about Use Your Illusion 1 and 2. Uh, and then they have Sebastian Bach and Ricky Rackman on there who obviously knew these guys at the time and hung out with them and they kind of give their uh feedback about what this rock writer's take on the albums were and and uh it's a good podcast i put a link to it on the rock album analysts page on facebook so if you want to check that out feel free but without further ado the album kicks off with maybe my favorite track on on the record civil war yeah, I'm actually, um, I remember hearing it because I didn't buy the albums. I remember hearing it on the radio and being like, I can't believe Guns N' Roses actually wrote this. That chorus, that line about um, soldiers in a grocery store, um, ain't that fresh, is, is pure genius um, about, you know, the cheapness of life or whatever, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, definitely, it's my favorite too. I love the Cool Hand Luke opening. Um, you know, there's just really, it's weird. It's a, it's a very well done song that I actually didn't even believe Guns N' Roses could pull off, but it's actually um, really well done. I, I do, you know, a little bit of the didn't fall for Vietnam thing is a little silly because I think they're, they would have been like five or six when Vietnam was going on, I think, right? Weren't they? They were technically... Well, Axel was 28 and 91, I think. So if you do the math, yeah. Yeah, they weren't old enough to serve in Vietnam. I mean, I always assumed they were a little bit older than I am, but that might be incorrect. Might right. Be Although, you know, he may, you know, he may simply be saying he didn't believe in the war, yeah. even as a child. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right. Okay. I'll buy that. But it's definitely, it is, it is one of my favorite songs on it. This automatically makes Use Your Illusion 2 my favorite of the two Use Your Illusions. Mike, your thoughts? Yeah, I, I dug it straight away um, when it was released. I, I for one, thought the, the intro was really dramatic with you know, the E minor chord, uh, arpeggiated. I also love the, uh, the Hendrix sort of, the tip of the hat to the Hendrix movie trial, uh, Wawa kind of stuff that Slash is doing. Um, interesting point, too. Um, I think this is the only track that uh, Stephen Adler plays drums on, on on either album, right? That is correct. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I kind of, again, I still prefer, you know, if, if I had any say, I prefer his feel <laughs> with the band, but, you know, uh, that being said, uh, it, you know, it, it's, it's cool. I mean, 
I also like the uh, uh, when you hear like you know Duff's background vocals um, in the in the breakdowns and the bridges. Kind of reminds me of Joe Perry, you know, doing background vocals in Aerosmith. Uh, the solo is killer. Um, and also, too, I don't know if any of you guys caught this at the time. Uh, they had played, well, I forget which, which one it was, but there was a series of benefit concerts called uh, Farm Aid. That was actually the first time I heard this song, as I heard a yeah. live version of it on the radio uh, when they played it on Farm Aid before this album came out. Yeah. Yeah, it's a great clip because this is, again, when Stephen was still in the band. Um, so you get to hear you know, that lineup play this tune. Uh, but funny thing about that show as well, they, you know, granted they're playing Farm Aid, right? So they, they go and play uh, the UK sub song, you know, Down on the Farm, you know, which really <laughs> is absolutely condescending in terms of, you know, life on a farm and how boring that might be. And, you know, can't fall in love with a wheat field. And it, it's just so many funny lyrics in the tune, you know. Uh, but again, you know, it, it, was, it was a great version of the tune. Uh, it's a great way to open the album. I dig it. Um, you know, I, I sort of went through the album and then said, you know, do I have keepers and will be non-keepers? I, I would definitely keep this, this track on, on the album. If we're doing like, you know, the best of the two albums. For sure. For yeah. sure. I, I, I agree wholeheartedly. I think this is actually a really complex subject matter for a rock song to take a look at. And I think that, that, that they do it really, really well, you know, because I, I, I think the whole thing is sort of a, a play on words. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you're, you're talking about a country that prides itself on uh, valuing peace and democracy and the spreading of human rights and yet has managed to be involved in wars or at least military actions in foreign countries through about 90% of its existence. And mm -hmm. I, I think that that dichotomy, particularly the types of military actions that America has been involved in post Vietnam, where it's a combination of the poor and private contractors that are actually out uh, participating in those wars. And, you know, it's possible for the vast majority of Americans to go about their daily life, not even really aware of what's going on with those conflicts that I think Axel's really talking about, you know, a civil war. You know, I, I don't think mm -hmm. he's necessarily talking about the civil war in particular. Yeah. Um, and I, yeah, I think you're right, John, the line that stands out is is uh you know selling selling soldiers into human grocery store um which is very evocative I mean, it's a almost... huge great line i mean that would that would be a that would be a great yeah that would be like a poet laureate type of line at some you know what i mean like it's it's really complicated i'm really impressed yeah, I mean, it's like some. The imagery is like something out of an EC comic. You yeah, know, you can you can imagine the body parts and stuff. If, if I wanted to get really nitpicky, I'd say, is there any other kind of grocery store other than a human grocery store? But okay, um, you know, I, I also think that Axel is a very smart, very clever person who really loves wordplay, and you know, I. If I had to nitpick a couple little things about this song, I would say I didn't need the refrain "Ain't that fresh" every time they yeah. <laughs> they, yeah. that they use that line because I think it it sort of detracts from the impact of it. Um, also, you know, the final line, "What's so civil about war anyway?" Yes, that's clever, yeah, but again, kind of... I don't know that it adds to the overall impact of the song. Well, that was the summary. 
for the people that didn't get it. <laughs> so, that's yeah. him. So for those of you who didn't understand what the song was about, here's what yeah. it's about. Right. Yeah, that that line kind of bugged me too because you know the song is, is strong on its own, and that you know closing line kind of cheapens it up in a way. Yeah. So it doesn't really, like you said, it doesn't, it doesn't add anything in a way. It kind of takes away from the song. It's a gimme, and it shouldn't be yeah. there. It doesn't need to be there. Yeah. Uh, one other last interesting thing about this song is this was apparently the song that uh, broke Steven Adler. Uh, Sebastian Bach talks about being over at his house on the 33 and a third podcast. And Steven's just being incredibly frustrated because no matter how hard he tries, he can't get the parts to this song, right. And he's trying to practice them at home and he's worried he's going to get kicked out of the band over it. And obviously he got him right. Cause he ended up on the album, but you know, things yeah. went downhill from there, but anyhow, um, 14 years. Uh, 14 years, uh, <laughs> my notes here. Now I wrote, I wrote these notes like two and a half, three weeks ago thinking I'd go back to it, but I didn't, but I said, it's actually a really good song, but I can't put my finger on why it is a really good song. Um, there's something sort of group. I, I got nothing to explain. Cause I, I can't even, the last time I listened to it was two weeks ago. I'm just going off my notes here. So Mike, what, tell me what, 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 what should I be putting my finger on? Uh, you know, I love it. For a couple of reasons. Again, it's cool. You got an Izzy tune on the record. Again, much like Illusion One is track two uh, on side one. Um, it's just, you know, I love the Izzy's writing style and his laid back, you know, approach to writing songs. It doesn't seem forced. Uh, it doesn't seem rushed. It's not trite at all. He's just kind of, you know, telling a story. And that's really what a song should do. It should be believable. You know, so I really, it's almost like conversational in a way. I, I dig it it's for, for those reasons. Yeah. And never mind the fact you got all those great solos you know, slashing this tune as well. Um, you know, I, it just it, it gives the band much more dimension. You know, when you have band members actually, you know, sing vocals and write lyrics, you know, it gives them, you know, throw the ball into Izzy and he, he, he does a good job. You know, he always delivers in that way. And, you know, whether or not, you know, it's, you know, the catchiest chorus in the world or, you know, the most clever lyrics in the world doesn't really matter in some cases. I think you can write a song and it tells a story and it serves a purpose in that way. And if you've got, you know, got a cool voice like he has, you know, I would love to write a tune like this. I'd, I'd be damn proud of it. Yeah, again, I think it would belong on the best of just because it's kind of a subject matter that isn't your typical rock and roll subject matter. I mean, I think both Axel and Izzy are fairly emotionally damaged individuals because mm -hmm. of their past and talking about how that puts up psychological walls and barriers from, you know, for them in terms of making new relationships is, you know, a worthy subject matter and, and, and one that you don't see addressed in, in a lot of rock and roll songs. So I, I dig this song. I mean, I think it's got a, a really cool groove to it and yeah, definitely, definitely deserves to be on the best of. Yeah, and, and on the you know, subject of troubled, you know, relationships and, and upbringing and things, I mean, add to that, you know, a band that's you know, successful at this level, you know, and can you imagine, you know, the people that were, you know, sort, sort of trying to ride your coattails and you know, look for a handout in a way because now you're successful, all of a sudden now you're meeting a friend, and, you know, really? <laughs> right, you know. right. Now you've got all new friends, I think is one of the lines, you know, how, how you've got all new, yeah. Yeah, uh, from from another song, and I, I'm sure that's that's how they felt because obviously when you become that successful, everybody wants to be your friend and everybody wants something from you, and you know you're you're not perhaps the most trusting individual or open individual to begin with. 
Mm-hmm. So right, that's a big theme on this whole album. It seems like. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yesterday's. Uh. Again, my my notes say I like the piano. Nothing really stuck out to me. I mean, it was a pretty song. There was nothing that great that uh, made it stand out to me, but I did like the piano part. I do like that they added a piano player, even though on the on Use Your Illusion 1, a lot of issues with the piano player. I was like, wow, this is too much. This is, um, you know, not Guns N' Roses anymore. There's, but it actually, I think he, I, I don't know how they recorded this. Did they record it all at once? and then put different songs on different uh, Use Your Illusions, because it seems like the piano stuff doesn't bother me as much on this album as it did on the first one. Hmm. So, it might be better integrated. I, I could see that. Yeah, I don't know. I, I, yeah. But yeah, it wasn't, um, it's, there's nothing that super stood out to me, but it's, it's pretty, you know, it's okay. The piano stuff is good. Mike? Yeah, I, I like the song when it came out. Um, you know, maybe like it less now, uh, because you know, I don't know. It's it's really just kind of like a simple sort of you know campfire you know chord change in a way. But for that reason alone, I think that's why the piano works better because there's a lot more space. It was a single, right? Wasn't this? Yeah, a it was one of the singles too. And that's, yeah, I can barely yeah. remember it though. That's what's funny is. Yeah, which is odd because it really feels like more of a sketch of a song than a fully mm-hmm. realized song. I think I think it works in context with the song before it it's almost like a commentary on 14 years you know as much as their past is a large part of them they're trying to escape it at the same time it's this barrier to moving on yeah hey that's a good point i mean think of that yeah and if you go overall, you know structure wise i think the verse is stronger than the chorus it's, the chorus just kind of seems you know, blase in a way it doesn't really you know, deliver it the, the verse is much more interesting in my opinion Right. Well, especially because, you know, the Beatles song yesterday is is perhaps like the most famous, like, you know, song of all time and most covered song of all time. So whenever you get close to that in terms of a title and a a chorus, you know, that's if that's your competition, then, yeah, they didn't beat that. Right. Yeah. You can't you can't write you can't name a song yesterday anymore. I don't I feel you can't. No. Yeah. Although I also like the uh, the chord changes, you know, guns are great at going to different chord changes and chord structures for solo sections, and this one has a great example of that as well with killer solos for Slash. Um, I think also it sounds to me like you know, obviously Slash is more, I shouldn't say more, but he's more often seen playing a Gibson style guitar like a Les Paul or you know, double neck, and I think in this case it sounds like a Fender Strat. Okay, it's more like a Henderson tone, which is, is cool. Uh, but I have a question too. Um, obviously, Wes Arkin was a co-writer on this. Who is Billy McLeod? He's listed as a co-writer as well. Have you heard? I don't yeah. know. We'll have to look that okay. up. Okay. Okay. And also, Del James is listed as a co-writer too. Um, I don't think we brought this up before. This is a sidebar thing. Has anybody read the book uh, *The Language of Fear*, which was you know, a book that was written around the time of uh, the making of the videos for *November Rain* and? I have I have not, but it's it's interesting. On the thirty three and a third podcast, they talk about Dell being essentially inseparable from Axel and that that whole scene. And you know, I guess he's primarily known more as a, as a poet and a writer than than a lyricist. But yeah, he's all over these albums, and uh, 
you know, I think Ricky Rackman talked about it in the context of Guns N' Roses always sort of tried to take care of their friends and family and bring everybody along, you know, and, and make them a part of their success as much as possible. And I think sometimes, you know, it, it feels a little uh, forced when it, some of Dell's contributions to this album, but other times I think it works really well. Yeah. Okay, I was just curious, because I know I, I purchased the book, uh, Delaney, just my sister a couple of years back, and we just never, you know, did it. I touched back to see what her thoughts were in the book, so I'm thinking about finding copies myself and checking it out. We'll, we'll see. Yeah, I have to check that out for sure. Yeah. Um, knocking on Heaven's Door. Okay, so the story that I heard about this <laughs> is that apparently Bob Dylan kept, I guess they used to do this live or something, and Bob yes. Dylan literally said when are you called axel rose and said when are you going to record this and axel rose was like i don't know it's kind of a live thing and bob dylan actually said something to the effect of i need the publishing rights or something like that like he actually wanted guns and roses to record it because he needed a new income stream ah, uh, now i don't know if that's actually true but that's apparently from somebody close to gnr or whatever like i actually like axel said it or somebody i remember actually hearing you know that that was one of the reasons why they put it on the album um again possibly apocryphal but i don't know um because i mean you know bob dylan is still freaking touring you know what i mean like i saw him last i saw him like two weeks before the covid shutdown and he was still touring at you know 80 whatever so there's somehow he mismanaged his money or something i don't know at any rate um i it's a it's a Knocking on Heaven's Door is one of the greatest songs ever written, so I don't mind it. It doesn't, I think, of other Dylan updates, you know, like uh, Mr. Tambourine Man by the Birds and, you know, um, Watchtower by Hendrix. And I, so I wouldn't necessarily put it in the pantheon of, of those songs, you know what I mean, in terms of, uh, you know, um, great covers. But again, it's it's a good song. So it, and it keeps it almost kind of keeps with the theme of civil war. And again, keeps I don't mind listening to it, which keeps this album to me better than the first one. So, Mike, what do you think? Uh, to your point, John, about uh, it's interesting about Dylan needing the publishing um, because I find it kind of humorous in a way because right I guess a year well a few years prior to this record, uh, Dylan was involved in a movie called Hearts of Fire. I'm sorry, Hearts on Fire, which had you know Fiona, you know, who had worked with you know Kip Winger and had a couple of hits and Dylan McDermott. So it's kind of like a you know pseudo rockumentary kind of thing. It's a terrible movie, you know, and it's the movie bombed, you know. But you know, Dylan has this key role in it, but he's kind of phoning in his part. You know, maybe he's not making the best you know, career moves around this time. But either way, um, yes, for sure they they performed this song a lot live. And I remember I can't seem to track it down, but there was a live version that was on, uh, that was being played on radio you know, when I was a kid in Pittsburgh. Yes, yeah. there yeah, was. Yeah, that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that was the first time I think, well, I think the first time I heard them do it was when they had the Live at the Ritz thing on MTV, but there yeah. was a radio single of them playing it live. I don't know, it might have been taken from the Ritz. Um, 
And and what was notable about that version of it was there was a bass flub where like Duff was clearly just one half step off from the note that he was going for. And it was just so brilliantly and glaringly the wrong note. It couldn't have been more the wrong note. And they just kept it in. And it was it was great. Yeah, you know, flubs aside, I, I. You know, I prefer that live version. You know, it's more interesting. There's more energy to it. This is so overly produced that it kind of takes any life that was in the song out of it. It's so funny that you say that because my what I was going to say is I love their cover of this song, but I love the live version. And I wish that they had put that live version on this album uh, because then it would definitely be on the best of Use Your Illusion. But, you know, this version feels so overproduced and like kind of restrained with those background singers and then there's the weird Dell James poetry thing that you know where the song just stops and he's just kind of doing his talking and this is not an example I think where where that fits in well to the song yeah yeah it doesn't it's I mean it's a good song but it just it doesn't hold up to like great covers of Dylan songs Right, but the live version does. Yeah, okay, I'll buy that. Yeah, yeah I, I yeah, haven't heard the live version in a long time. I remember liking it, but it's got so much more passion to it. I mean, it, it's so it's so much more raw and sweaty and and believable. Whereas this just feels like, you know, it happened because Bob Dylan needed the publishing rights. Yeah, <laughs> and it's, and it's yeah, right. I mean, is, can, I mean you've been, you guys haven't heard that story. I would think you guys would have heard that no, story. No. Yeah, for me, I'm like I heard, he like pestered Axel into recording it because he was huh. like, "I need the publishing rights." Well, yeah, on the publishing thing, then too, isn't there? Aren't there different lyrics in the the Dylan version? Because doesn't he close the, the chorus with you know, like so many times before, like too many times before? Why why don't why aren't those lyrics in in Gun's version? Oh, interesting. You know, I didn't compare yeah. the original version of that. I have to go back and re-listen to yeah. it. Yeah. And there's nobody as a co-writer, so they, obviously they might change the lyrics you know, with, with or without permission. You know. There's a whole rabbit hole of that kind of stuff with Dylan songs, actually. There's oh, okay. verses well, there's that like are he here. He changes the lyrics. Yeah. yeah there's, he <laughs> yeah. literally will not play his songs like they're supposed to be played uh, when he performs live. The only way he can yeah. catch, he rewrites the music to each of his hits. Uh, when he plays live because he doesn't want you to know what's coming. You know what I mean? Like, it's it's really bizarre. Like, I've seen him live a bunch of times in the last few years, and every single time I'm, I'm like, oh, this is Highway 61, because I got the verse. You know what I mean? But the music yeah. doesn't sound like Highway 61. So he, he, and he throws in new verses and things like that. There's a whole, whole world of that. There's a podcast in that, but I don't want to make that one. <laughs> yeah, no, I saw him at the, at the bowl a few years back, and um, again, it took me about to you know the second course to figure out what song he was playing. It was, it was a weird experience. If you want to hear the album versions, don't go to see live. You're not going to hear it. And the band seems so professional. <laughs> you know what I mean? I like they'd have to be, right? I of mean, to course, keep up yeah. With but that. I mean, there's, yeah, no, right, there's yeah. something about them that it's like this is the well we're we're off on a tangent here but yeah, this is the guy yeah. who did the rolling thunder review where he when they recorded like a rolling stone he said everybody play a different instrument than you came with 
you know what I mean? And so like he, it's purposely sloppy. And then you go to see them just recently and the band is literally like the guy steps out two steps to take his solo as the, you know, spotlight hits him, then two steps back when the solo is done. You know what I mean? I mean, it's really, you know, just way different. Yeah. All right. Sorry. Carry on. All right. Okay. That's all right. Get in the ring. Um, I liked, I mean, I, I liked it. I mean, I, again, I didn't really, I mean, how do I put this? I never really cared that I didn't follow the drama of Guns N' Roses that much. So, uh, but it's a good diss song. I mean, definitely the stuff he says about um, Guccione Jr. is pretty funny and over the top when you're driving with your kids in the car. But um, it's, uh, you know, it's definitely, I, I mean, I like it, you know, I mean, I, I like the idea, you know, that it's, it's sort of like those, it's like the, like a Kiss Army anthem, except filthier and not as well put together, you know, but it's, I, I don't know. I don't, I liked it. It's a good diss song. Mike, what do you think? I, I have a funny story about this song, I'll, but, I'll, but I'll tell the story at the end. Um, I kind of think it's a silly song, you know. I mean, I think it's it's a bold move to sort of air any sort of dirty dirty laundry, you know, on an album because you know once you've heard it, you already know what it's about, and it becomes uninteresting after that point. Um, but I also wonder too, wasn't there a situation too where we spoke about this, where like Axel and Vince Neil were going to you know schedule a fight, and there's something about. Izzy Spradlin hitting on, on Vince's girlfriend or something at the time. You know, yes, this... and they, they went back and forth about, you know, you choose the weapons, guns, knives, oh, yeah, whatever, yeah. you know, name the place, I'll be there. And yeah, it was a whole a whole thing. But, I mean, to, you know, to have this many enemies, <laughs> it, it's pretty amazing in that industry. And to have that kind of success, I mean... You well, can't they don't, I don't think they really have that many enemies. I think they were just, you know... Oh, I do. I mean, I think Axel did not get along with lots of different people for lots of different reasons, not all of which were his fault, but perhaps some were, you know, and I, I think this song is kind of one step removed from like that man o war song about you know man o war you know and the, the crowd chant singing you know it's gonna kick your ass you know yeah it's, yeah. A, it's a little silly i mean it's the kind of song that when you're 14 or maybe in your early 20s if you're you know a victim of arrested development yeah. <laughs> you know, would find uh something that you could totally get behind but I, you know, is Axel wrong that Hit Parader was perhaps not paragons of journalistic integrity? No, I'm sure that they printed <laughs> things about Guns N' Roses that were not true. I, I would say that by and large, they were probably guiltier of printing um, unrewritten press releases, which you could mm. see because, you know, very frequently what would happen is albums were supposed to come out and then they were delayed after Hit Parader had been printed. And so you'd be reading this article about how, you know, Ozzy was worried his new album wasn't going to go gold, but now it's top 20 and all of the fears are, have been uh, allayed. 
and you're going, well, wait a minute, how can they say it's top 20 when it just got pushed back two months? It's not even out yet. <laughs> that was probably like a sign that maybe not everything that Hip Parader was printing and talking about was, you know, 100% accurate in the journalistic world. So, um, you know. <laughs> it's funny because it was either Hip Parader or, uh, I know we're off in the tangent here, but it was either that or like, Musician magazine. I remember seeing an interview or a review of the Twisted Sister record, uh, "Stay Hungry," uh -huh. and they were they were saying, "Oh, you know, the, the cover of the Who classic. We're not going to take it. Is, is a killer take. But it's not a cover song. <laughs> it's the original song <laughs> yeah. that the band actually wrote." But anyway, sidebar. Yeah, that um, does make you yeah. wonder. So, what's your story about this? <laughs> the only rock mag that rock mag that they don't really call it by name would be like Faces Rocks and, and uh, Rip. I can't, you know what I mean? That, that's it. Well, know? yeah, because right? Lon Friend was actually close to the band and they got along well. And yeah. I think they, yeah, they felt a kinship there. Yeah. Uh, my funny story, and this, this is, you know, me being a, a silly kid. Um, I, in the 90s, I was uh, going out to, you know, various, you know, venues on Carson Street in Pittsburgh. And one of those was, uh, you know, we hit Friday night, uh, Fatheads on Carson. And, you know, bars tend to have jukeboxes, right? And a lot of times they had the full disc available to play, play any track you want from the record. So me and my friend would immediately go to play this track. And once they start getting all the cussing and all the stuff, I mean, you know, we're talking about, you know, turning heads, you know, pun intended. I mean, people were like, what the hell is going on here? There's all this cussing and it, it's, it's hilarious. And to those that don't know the song, to hear it for the first time, just, you know, seeing, you know, the, the disgust on people's faces in the bar was great. So sorry, I, I devilish, you know, sense of humor sometimes, but yeah. Anytime you see this on jukebox, put a quarter in play, you get a lot of laughs out of it. Yeah, well, so maybe not a great song, but obviously it served a, a useful purpose in your youth. That it did. Now, on that subject, too, I made a list of keepers and non-keepers. This would not be a keeper, in my opinion, on, on these albums. It's, you know, it's just kind of a silly thing. I agree. I agree. Okay. Shotgun Blues. Uh, I really don't like this song at all. It's just an, It seems like an Aerosmith riff. One of the funniest things... Uh, or what my little story about this is what Emily and I are listening to this in the car and she's like not listening to this anymore and skits the skip button on this song like so it, I don't like it Emily didn't like it so Mike what do you think I don't like it either John it's it's, it's an Aerosmith song yeah I mean it kind of has like that sort of mock-in uh riffage in a way but yeah it's just too busy there's not enough space in the song the lyrics and the cadence are rushed it seems jumbled um you know Guns are great at doing like their version of a punk rock song. Punk rock song. I think they've done better versions of that on songs like "It's So Easy." You know, it's just it just seems too jumbled, too rushed. Yeah. It feels like filler. It feels like there's so many long, elaborate songs on this album that feature heavy keyboards and stuff that somebody said to them at some point, "You need to have some straight ahead, fast rockers to balance that out." And this yes. is one of those songs that was supposed to fulfill that role, but that in and of itself doesn't really make it a great song. All right, so now we get into, I think, some, some more of the meat of the album, mm -hmm. uh, Breakdown. Okay, so uh, it has a pretty good groove. Um, and some of the lyrics are pretty good, like everything was roses when we held the guns and Bite the hands that feel uh, that feeds. Feed. Yeah, it seems like again. This is later. Axel talking about how we're famous now and everybody wants to be our front uh, friends. Um, 
what's the line he says let me hear you know is or something what does he say let me hear you let me hear you now yeah, yeah. let me hear you now that's stupid i hate that i that really turns me off from the song but um there's like you know allusions to like vanishing point and stuff in there like it's a pretty it's a pretty complicated song it's pretty interesting it could be about you know the breakdown of a relationship but it could be like breakdown of axel to all of his old friends or whatever or just about his general mental state um so i actually i actually really like it it's got some pretty good lyrics got a nice groove now um, when you say vanishing point what are you referring to I'm not sure. I, I swear there was some sort of thing in there that talked about uh, the movie oh. Vanishing Point. Is that the Dell James spoken word thing at the end? Is that that might be from? it. Yeah, I don't know. I got to look. Again, I did this like three weeks ago. Sorry, man. Um, yeah, okay. Ignore that. Don't talk anything about Vanishing Point. I will okay. see if I can look that up really quick. Okay, um, while you look up Vanishing Point, Mike, your thoughts? Um... It's funny. As much as I like this song, um, I can't, the chorus just fails completely for me. It, 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 you know, it's just one word with, you know, let me hear you now. It, it's such a silly lyric. I mean, it's just everything about this song is great, in my opinion, uh, except for the chorus. I mean, you know, there are terms like, you know, that are trendy and hip, you know, but this is sort of like an epic type song. I mean, you've got the great uh, banjo at the beginning and marching drums uh, at the beginning. Um, yeah, yeah, know. yeah. Yeah, it, it's a cool arrangement. Um, it's a, it's a, it's a well-written song, but I think they could have done something more with the lyrics and the chorus in a way. Yeah, I could I could see that. Yeah, John, it's I got it. It's a, it's a monologue that he he speaks at the uh, end. It's from, from the movie Vanishing, Vanishing Point. Point. Oh, okay. okay. But it's uh, it's it's uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's when the when he's being chased by the car. I remember thinking that was pretty cool. Um, but there's a monologue in there. And the, and um, so all of that was really neat, but then that stupid "let me hear you now" just ruins it. So yeah, so that's interesting. Um, this was apparently the song that gave Matt Sorum the the most trouble um, hmm. playing the drums in that in that kind of I don't know what you would call it country fied intro type thing. Mm -hmm. Apparently, that was really hard for him to nail the timing. Um, I heard Slash tuned his. Cause I actually looked up this song cause I was like, this song is better than I think it is. And I looked it up. Um, but it's got, um, it's got a uh, slash playing, playing a banjo tune, like a guitar or something. Cause he didn't actually know how to play banjo. Hmm. Whatever. Ah. So I yeah. Don't care. yeah. I mean, I, I get what you guys are saying that the chorus is, is probably not the most memorable part of this song, but I, I think that the verses are so strong that the chorus almost just functions as a bridge between them and i you know i think there's so many great lyrics and and you know this is you know one of the problems with i think so some of the songs on on use your illusion one and two is that axel has so much to say and he's just kind of spitting it out very quickly not married to any memorable melodies so it doesn't stick but i think this is a case where he's got a lot to say and he's figured out a way to marry it to a memorable melody so that it sticks and it works and it, you know, it, it has a lot to say and it, it says it well. So I like this song a lot. Yeah. It's surprisingly good. You know what I mean? Like I didn't expect to like it, but I, I actually like it a lot. 
Yeah, and it's you know it stands out arrangement wise uh, and writing wise compared to some of the like even just you know the last few songs we spoke about. But on on that point to a vanishing point, now remember I think this that sort of narrative is at the end of the movie because it's sort of like a, a dirty Mary crazy Larry kind of you know movie where you know this guy's just like you know being chased in, in the car and he's you know committing all these crimes and stuff. And I think at the end when he's finally knowingly going to be you know taken out by police you know this is for like i think the end narrative uh, okay so it's yeah, almost I, like a I film and louise it, kind of thing i yeah, typed in yeah. the monologue and or typed in the few words from the monologue and that's what i found so that's how i figured it out and i think that was also the movie that um there's a credit on paul stanley solo i forget the, the woman's name but she was, was the actor or she was an actor in that movie or an actress if you want to call it that um i think it's a, victoria medlin right hmm, okay yeah. Yeah, I think she's in in this movie. It's one of the yeah. Interesting. One of those yeah. great movies that I've only seen once, but apparently is like the greatest movie ever. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I saw it on VHS like back in the '90s or something, and I don't know. It's, it's inspired everyone. Yeah. <laughs> Pretty tied up the perils of rock and roll decadence. Uh, I like the sitar that's in it, and I like the guitar riff, and the bass sounds great in it. Uh, great in it, but there's uh, lyrically, it's you know, whatever. Not really interesting. I don't really like. You know what I mean? I I I like. You know, it's got a good groove to it, but it doesn't really particularly super stand out as great to me. Mike, what do you think? Um, I dig it. You know, for, you know, for, uh, obviously, you know, the, the, the choral sitar kind of sounds at the beginning, which is really, you know, a trendy tone at the time. I think Ellie Gunn said he did one of their records at the time. Oh, really? Um, yeah, I, not Malaria. It's, it's on whatever record has the track Malaria, I'm pretty sure. Um, it's, a cool t it's a cool tone. It's, it's also a difficult uh, instrument to keep in tune because the intonation is so nutty. Um, but anyway, it, it's a cool intro. I like the song primarily just for the, um, the energy that it has. You know what I mean? It's, it's a cool rock tune. It's got like, like a soaring kind of feel. Uh, it almost has like a John Bonham, uh, Zeppelin, Achilles, uh, Last Stand feel with the drums. Uh, it's you know, a, it's it, a monster groove. It really yeah. is. Yeah. I mean, it's such a, you know, I'm, I'm probably underselling it that way, but yeah, it, it rocks. Um, and also too, you know, it tells a cool LA tale in a way that only band, you know, certain bands like, you know, Guns and Motley could really do in a convincing way. You know, I, I believe everything they're saying. I think that, you know, they're just, they're telling you know it's sort of like a tongue-in-cheek tale. I mean, even to the point where they're you know come up with these little you know plays on words like you know cool and stressing, but it's really cool and stressing. You know, they're, they're, yes, that's that's creative. actually an example I think of Axel once again being a little too clever for his own yeah. good. You know, it's like yes, cool ranch dressing can also sound like cool and stressing, but does it really make sense in the context of the song? Not especially. No, and it's almost like you know the kind of speak you would have if you had like a gang. You know, like only a, you know only these guys know what that what that language is. You know what that means. Right, so like an in joke. In yeah. Right. Um, I, I do think that this song kind of continues on a, a tradition that they kind of got into on Lies, where um, they, they write songs where the subject matter sort of jetes back and forth between Axel talking about a relationship and then Axel talking about the band. And mm. in, in some ways, the one kind of reflects back on the other so it's sort of hard to say 
overall what the song is about, but I think this song does it in a kind of clever way because obviously he's talking about a relationship with a girl that he's involved in in which S&M is a component and you know she although he finds her arousing <laughs> he's not mm -hmm. necessarily sure that this is the woman he wants to spend the rest of his life with and i think the pun that allows them to go back and forth is what they're saying when they're talking about her is that she is pretty when she is tied up but they're also mm -hmm. doing a play on words saying um it's pretty fucked up um both mm -hmm. what she is into and also the position that the band fi finds themselves in right because you know they've had all this success and yet they feel like the band is falling apart and become a joke obviously they've gone through two out of the original five members you know mm -hmm. have now left the band um and you know that I think that there's a very specific line in the song when he talks about I just found a million dollars that someone forgot that I'm sure is based on something where they were going over something with their accountant and they got underpaid or somebody you know absconded with a million dollars that was supposed to be given to them. Um, you know, it reminds me of there was a time Richard Pryor was on some talk show and he was supposed to be paid a million dollars in his contract and they got a check for a hundred thousand dollars and he called up the people that issued the check and you know and he said um you know this check's only for a hundred thousand dollars and they said oh you noticed that and he goes oh yes i did <laughs> so you know uh the crazy world of rock and roll accounting i'm sure when a band is at that level um you know there has never been a band that has ever opened up their books and not found money that was owed to them by the record company that was never paid yeah yeah and, and again on, on the, the thing of you know, this being a great you know, tale i think izzy was one of the primary songwriters in this case and you know is he sort of like signaling his, his exit, exit of the van because he's saying that most of us is rock and roll band rolling sweet time went by and it became a joke you know it's almost like someone can see the end here like the, the end result is you know, maybe me not being in the band anymore yeah oh absolutely it, it definitely feels like a commentary on yeah the original lineup being no more yeah and cool too how like you know again we talked about other songs where it seems like a, a jumbled sort of rushed sort of mess in a way whereas there's a great cadence and feel to the to the melodies you know, the vocal melodies in the song it works it, there's enough space and you can understand what they're saying without having to really you know investigate the lyrics it's a well-written song it's it's cool it's, it's one of my favorites um in their catalog i dig it absolutely so that leads us on to locomotive complicity which <laughs> I have to say, putting the word complicity in parentheses in the title of this song, just, you know, if you want to criticize these albums for being a little pretentious, that's there. There we go. That I don't yeah. know that that was necessary, but OK. Locomotive, John. Uh, I like the bass riff at the beginning um, and the guitar riff is pretty good and chunky and there's a nice groove to it. Um, you know, I like the. Um, you know, the verses, I mean, the vo vocal melodies are working pretty well. I mean, I, I, I kind of liked it. I didn't expect to because I figured another song about a train. I mean, in rock and roll, can you really do that again? But it works pretty well. 
So I get, you know, I give it two and a half out of five stars, you know, not unlistenable. Mike? Um, I, I think my perspective on the song really has very little to do with the lyrics. I'll admit that straight away, but only because it, there's so many cool riffs in this song. It opens with this sort of uh, funky Hendrix band of Gypsies type riff at the beginning. Um, and that riff you know, in the verses and stuff is just relentless. You know, that tone you know, on, on the guitar is, is just blistering in a cool way. Uh, it, you know, it's, it's cool. And then you get to the chorus, you know, this is not focused focus on the lyrics, but that strange timing of, of the chorus, you know, that descending riff is just badass. I mean, that must, this track must have been a real pain in the butt to keep track of, you know, rhythm-wise and, and timing-wise. Um, you know, it, and also, too, I remember seeing, um, I found some footage, I guess, Guns N' Roses um, for this tour had done a show in Paris, it would be like a live pay-per-view thing. And I guess, you know, uh, not I guess, uh, Aerosmith, uh, Stephen Tyler, Joe Perry sat in, Lenny Kravitz. Apparently Jeff Beck was supposed to sit in too. And I guess the, I've seen footage of uh, Jeff sitting in his sound check. And this is definitely the kind of thing that Jeff Beck would do well on. But I guess the band had been playing so loud that day and, and Jeff has hearing issues and he decided not to play the show because it was just not going to work for him. It would have been cool to see because Jeff would have killed on this tune. It's, it's such a Relentless riff, and there's so many great solos from Slash on this song. There's so many licks that I've, you know, been influenced by, quote unquote, uh, stolen from Slash. <laughs> you know, it's it's a great, you know, it's a really great example of of how great uh, Slash's rhythm playing is, as well as his lead playing. Um, the riffs are really interesting, but you know, lyrically, you know, I'm gonna leave that to Dave. Okay, I dig the tune. I dig the tune. I I really like the song too. I think it's kind of a companion song to the previous song. In that, you know, it's again a, a, a kind of mid tempo rocker that's got just monstrous groove riffs to it. And again, Axel Jatang back and forth lyrically between talking about relationships and the band. And, and I, I think the thing about the whole locomotive concept is that, um, you know, I, I picture like some, some, girl with like a, a strap on on right as a phallic symbol because i mean you know rock and rollers have never been especially good at dealing with females that have their own sexual agency and do not behave in the ways that they would necessarily prefer that they do in in terms of um being monogamous and and I think that's kind of what this song is about when he's talking about those relationships. Um, I, I also think that it, it this is the first and only time he talks about, you know, I bought myself an illusion and I put it on the wall, you know, it really kind of extrapolating it into the, the concept behind these albums. Um, mm -hmm. The line that kind of sticks in my mind is, um, it's these prejudiced illusions that pump the blood to the heart of the biz. Um, I don't know if prejudiced is the right word that he was looking for. Um, you know, like, like poisonous, maybe like mm -hmm. in, in, inaccurate, um, detrimental, you know, perhaps, but, but mm -hmm. I, I don't know that those illusions were especially um, prejudiced. Um, I do think there's a lot of words in this song and that descending part that you were talking about that, you know, sweetness is a virtue, da, 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 da. you know, I, we maybe could have done with one less of those lyrically mm. because it does get to be a little 
redundant lyrically where he's kind of finding new ways to say the same thing that he just said with different words. But again, this is a band that was in a position where nobody was going to be telling them no about anything. And again, what's interesting about the song is there is that turnaround where, you know, he also criticizes himself and ultimately says, hey, I'm so stupid. And, you know, if love is blind and strange, I'll, I don't have all the answers. I guess I'll buy myself a cane. And like that kind of um, self-effacing self-awareness, I think really makes this song take, take you on a journey. So that's why I would put it on the best of. Yeah, and, and but that that turnaround too goes into that cool um, coda in a way, because you know the different chords changes, and it's more like a dramatic you know piece at the end of the song, which has a really cool feel to it. I, I dig that as well. The the interesting thing here is that someone calls out Axel. I read this called out Axel about his hatred of women, his lyrics that were mean to women, and that kind of stuff. And he, I think it's about this time that he comes out and he says. Yeah, well, I had really poor vision or views on women, and this I'm starting to I'm trying to work on myself, you know, and uh, this is all stems back from like past family issues and that kind of stuff, and you know, it is interesting that he self-reflects at least in this song. Yeah, I mean, so much so, more so than say "back off, bitch." <laughs> right? Yeah, I mean, I think he even like he says the song isn't the song like ten like an older song, you know, that they did if I remember correctly. But I don't, I don't know. Maybe. Yeah, I think he's, I'm trying to think. There was one. Oh well. Yeah. So he does. He does own up to it to some degree. You know. I mean, he owns up to like all of his failings, which I sort of I give him credit for. You know. Um, yeah. You know. Yeah. Interesting too that the, you know this is one of several songs that are you know well over you know, the typical you know, three minute uh, you know radio hit in a way. So this, this tune alone is like eight minutes forty seconds long. There's a lot of long songs in this record. It is, and it doesn't. But it doesn't feel, with the exception of maybe they could have done one less of those. I don't know what you would call that. Uh, it's a bridge. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, you know, but on the whole, I you know I I stay with the song from beginning to end. <laughs> I do too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I agree. So fine. I literally just wrote "ug." I couldn't <laughs> listen to it. I couldn't listen to it, man. I, I just couldn't do it. Um, I don't like it. Good, Mike. Tell me what's good about it. Um, I dig it for you know. At, at first, I, I thought it was kind of a silly tune, but you know, after reading you know Dust autobiography and you know knowing more about what he's about, um, I it it seems as a believable moment. Um, from his perspective, um, I think it's also cool how it adds again that extra dimension to the you know, to the band and to the album. You've got other guys that actually write songs get a chance to sing the song. You know, is Peter Chris your favorite writer and Kiss? You know, debatable, but is it cool that he's you know written songs and sang songs in the record? Yes. Um, you know, it, it it gives people options in a way, and it shows you know there's some you know, different levels and, and dimensions in the band. Um, you know, it's sort of a simple song. It's also got that sort of, you know, campfire kind of feel with, you know, big, easy, open chord changes with all that great slide, slide playing from Slash. Um, then it goes into like that sort of punk rock bridge, you know, which would be right up Dust Alley as well. So, um, you know, for what it's worth, I think it's just cool for the factor that, you know, Dust got a song on the record and he sings it. You know, it's he's like, you know, Beatles, what they can kiss. You know, everybody writes songs, put something on the record, whether or not, you know, it's up to you to decide whether or not you like it. I, I find this interesting for that point alone. 
it's, it's believable. It's genuine. I, I dig it. Yeah, I mean, it was dedicated to Johnny Thunder, who died during the recording of the album. Um, I take your point, Mike, that it adds a, a different color to the mm-hmm. album. It's, you know, so you're not just hearing all Axel all the time. Um, I still don't know that that makes it a great song in and of itself, worthy of being on the best of, but, you know, I don't, I don't hate it. I, I just don't necessarily think that it's great. Yeah, and I also like it too because, you know, it's sort of like a, you get to take a breather in a way. Like some of these songs are so relentless. Like the song before this, which we love, Locomotive. Yes. Relentless. You need something a little more slow paced to follow that. Otherwise, you, it's a, you, it's you a good palate cleanser. I, yeah. I go with you there. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> I thought it was funny too in the live shows that they did on this tour, um, Axel, but occasionally, uh, I think one of the last lines in the song was, How could it be? She might be mine. And I think Axel with the wink would say, Because she's smart. <laughs> it would add like this tagline. Oh, really? Yeah. (laughs) That's funny. And actually, it's interesting that line. um, Yeah. How could it be that she could be mine? It does kind of reflect back on the later song. You could be mine. Right. I mean, Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. So from that perspective, there is it does sort of tie together in a way. Yeah, Yeah, not the greatest song, but, you know, it it adds something to it. Yeah. Estranged uh big elton john influence uh i do like the vocal delivery it's sort of the poor man's um november rain you know what i mean it's almost like they're sort of trying to recreate it but it clocks in at nine minutes and 24 seconds and i stayed through the whole thing like it's actually a pretty interesting song um again i think it's axel sort of just dealing with being axel but um you know, I actually, I liked it a lot. I mean, it did not, at first I was like, oh, I am not going to like this at all. But it's uh, the way that the vocals are delivered during the verse, you know, it holds my attention. It's not particularly boring. I think it's a pretty well done song. Um, and it clocks in at 924 and I stayed through the whole thing. So I like it. Good, I love this too. I love this. Too. I mean, I know it's a lot to digest, you know, from a listener perspective, it's a long tune, but it holds your interest. Um, you know, it's funny too, if you look at footage of them playing these songs, particularly on the illusion tours, um, I've, I've seen interviews with the guys who are just saying, well, sometimes we kind of got lost in the arrangement of the song. We look at each other for what's the next chord change, you know, and kind of forget what was coming up next, uh, which, you know, considering how long the song is, is that surprising. Um, yeah, I, but it's, it's so dramatic in a way it's, it's, you know, you compare this to the stuff that's on Illusion, and this is songwriting on a whole different level you know, for this band in a way. It, 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 to me, it's an impressive tune, a great arrangement. You um, mean on the first Illusion, or you mean No, I'm sorry, I mean, uh, just, no, no, I'm sorry. I, I meant Appetite, yeah. I mean, you know, Appetite, they're obviously more of a more like, you know, garage band kind of, you know, and this is just so much more sophisticated than anything on, on Appetite. Sorry, I meant the wrong word there, but um, uh, what did I say about this song too? Oh yeah, um, man, there's some great guitar playing from Slash on, the, on this too. I remember seeing interviews with Gilby Clark where he was saying, you know, how does somebody hold a note for that long? And there's some <laughs> notes that are being held for like, you know, a good, you know, minute and a half. You know, and this is a great example of, you know, Slash using feedback on the track. It's, yeah, to the point too, I think this is one of the tunes where uh, I think Slash yeah, because there's, there's a documentary they're making the video of this song, and I think Slash says, you know, he's looking for some sort of songwriting credit some of the guitar work on this and actually like, well, you know, it's not really going to happen. Um, but in, in a way, Slash's guitar work is, you know, 
equally as important as what's going on with the, the vocal melodies. Um, it, it's it's it, this it's funny it, you, you speak to people about these, these records and there's so many people I know that either love the illusion records or can't stand them. And if you go see Guns Live, you know the people that can't stand the illusion stuff are the people that are you know, going for a bathroom break when they play these songs. Whereas I'm waiting for this song. I love hearing this song live. I, this song I love. It's killer. Yeah, it's a pretty complex song. It's pretty well done. Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty beautiful. I mean, the melody, I mean, you know, like November Rain, as much as I love that song, there is kind of a schmaltzy aspect to it, it you know, as yeah. well. Whereas this song, I think, you know, Axel has a lot of kind of cool and interesting and not cliche things to say, and he's expressing them well. It's a, it's a very poignant song. You know, that mm -hmm. whole thing about like, you know, you don't walk so loud and you don't talk so, you don't uh, walk so proud, you don't talk so loud anymore. And what for, you know, mm -hmm. I mean, kind of the kind of thing that kind of the hairs in the back of your neck stand up and, and, you know, you get a little lump in your throat because I think everybody knows what it's like to feel young and invincible and on top of the world. And then everybody knows what it's like to, come down from that and be regrounded and and have their ego put in check and realize that you know we're all mortal and human and prone to mistakes and and you know i i think it's it's a great song and we have to talk a little bit about the video because um you know this is right at the intersection of of where uh videos were were kind of becoming more and more artsy and stuff and and you know sort of obviously they were commercial vehicles for selling the band selling the records and, and whatnot but mm -hmm. like you know some of the imagery in this video where they basically turned sunset boulevard into like the streets of venice where there's water going <laughs> down the road and then there's dolphins that are, that are swimming in the water you know really is kind of a magical mystical like thing where obviously it's not true but you know in some sense that was hallowed ground those places the whiskey and the roxy and the rainbow where you know amazing musical things were happening and so you know metaphorically speaking even though that wasn't true literally it sure ought to have been and you know mm -hmm. when you when you go there and you see those places and you think about bands like guns and roses and motley Crue and van halen and all these bands and emerged from that you know like literally four block area and <laughs> went mm -hmm. on to such great success um i i think that visually they found a really interesting and creative way to express how magical those places were yeah, and also too how you could be sort of you know just a, a face in the crowd. I mean, that the whole thing with you know Slash sort of playing the guitar solo in the video and, and not being recognized and being basically ignored by everybody, you know. And right, he's, he's obviously not the he's the last guy in the world that's not going to be recognized. I mean, he shows up in the top hat, you know, Slash. So, um, but I I love the video too because it I finally found somebody that can, you know I could I could sort of relate to it in a way because I've as a kid up to, up to this point I've always had dreams where if I'm walking down the sidewalk and I don't want to walk anymore I can just levitate and just right and obviously the way yeah. they shot it he's floating he's not yeah, walking but, yeah. wow there you go you know and that's what I'm talking about that's the, the way that feels that to me is cool I mean, yeah, again you know videos in those days were huge things I mean you know granted you know people are still releasing videos these days but it, it seems 
so much less important you know, with inter internet stuff. It just seems like you know it's a forgotten thing in a way, even though people are still doing great videos these days. But this was like you know this is a whole different level of, of making videos. And, I, mean, I would argue videos are back to selling bands. That's how my students get. Yeah, on TikTok, yeah, yeah. Well, TikTok uh, and yeah. just the the videos. I mean, like freaking look at BTS. I mean, Jesus Christ, those are million dollar movies squeezed down to three minutes. You know, pop songs or whatever. I mean, that's. I mean, that is how students of mine are delivered their music now. Yeah. Well, Mike, you're about to shoot some videos for the claws, right? So, you know, if you want yeah. to jump off an aircraft carrier into the ocean and <laughs> swim with some dolphins, I'd love to see that. Uh, we'll, we'll see if I can levitate. We'll see if we can please levitate, yeah. In the budget, right? Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, funny though, too, there's um, a series of documentaries on the making of these videos. And, and this one was the last one. I think this was called, uh, it was obviously The Making of the Strange. I don't know why they call it this. We call it part four of the trilogy, which is just funny. Yeah, uh, Kirby, there's, a, there's a great clip at the end of this um, where they, I think they're filming some live footage at Long Beach Arena, and there's a clip of Duff and Slash kind of sitting at the, you know, the front of the stage, and they call uh, who was their, their touring keyboard player, Teddy Andreatis, and they're calling Teddy and they said, hey, we just finished a video shoot, what are you doing, man, we want to party, and Teddy's not having anything to do with it, and they're like, all you hear is, you know, Slash and Duff talking, I guess, and Slash is like, well, you're in for the evening, Ted, and they're like, yeah, okay, well, we can be there, and I guess Teddy asked them, where are you guys, and we're in Long Beach, we'll be there. 10 minutes, you know, which you cannot get from Long Beach to the Valley in 10 minutes. <laughs> Not even at 4 a.m. No. <laughs> <laughs> so then Slash says, oh, we'll be there in 20 minutes. And he starts laughing. Yeah. So, you know, Teddy shut them down. They didn't get the party. And then Slash goes, see, this is how few friends we have in this world. <laughs> <laughs> Guys can't find a place to go and party because it's after hours. So light, light, times is hard. You know? <laughs> right, right. It, it's a great clip. Though. If you can pull it up, you'll, you'll be seeing it. Yeah, I got to find those documentaries for sure. Yeah, I've got them on VHS. I don't think they ever released them on DVD. They should. Good stuff. Okay. You could be mine. Okay, so I'm uh, listening to this, and I think it's an ad for something else. Um, when I'm listening to it, I'm just listening to it on iTunes, but for some reason it comes on because I'm like, this isn't Guns N' Roses. This is something else. Um, but then I realized this is it. I, I didn't realize how much this song was played like how much i recognized it you know what i mean well it was a single because there was a video it was tied into the terminator movie although it wasn't okay. on the terminator soundtrack but yeah mm -hmm. arnold's in the video and yeah well uh i it's it's got the the guitar riff and it sounds just like a freight train you know what i mean it sounds really good and it's got um i like that opening bass riff with a little bit of flange on it or chorus or whatever they're doing um but it does seem a little angry towards women um, I think there's probably something I'm missing there lyrically. Like I didn't go too fine tooth comb over the lyrics or whatever, because it seems sort of, you know, kind of rapey. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, I, I could be wrong. So, um, but musically it stands up great. You know what I mean? It's a, it's a great sort of almost like, almost like heavy pop song or something like that. So. Did they put more production behind this because they knew it was going to be the movie soundtrack or something, or did they commercialize it up a little bit? Mike, uh, that, that I don't know, John. I mean, it's definitely the production on this is is, is pro. Um, I think it supports the song in that way. Um, this is also an Izzy, uh, you know, what I call it, a co-write. I think it's a great example of you know how important Izzy is in terms of you know 
most of their well-written songs have great arrangements and this is one of those i mean there's a lot of space in this uh, in terms of the lyric melody and vocal melody and, and the verses uh the chorus you know chord structure wise isn't really that interesting but that, that verse you know in the beginning and the verse um, that, that those chords in the beginning and the, the chords in the, in the verse are, are so killer uh, but the chorus is kind of it's it's almost like the stones um mixed emotions too you know when you get to the chorus of that song it's, it kind of falls apart in a way but then it goes back to the killer riff in the verse i mean but either way it's it's a well-written tune uh the vocal melodies are cool there's a lot of space um it's cool to hear izzy doing the uh the background vocals and the choruses and also he takes i think the b lines in the outro sort of coda i'm uh, mm. doing like you could be mine he's doing you could be mine you know, yeah that's cool. definitely I mean, not axel no no and it was cool too finally to see use of you know there was that uh narrative in uh the liner notes of appetite with the you know, bitch slap rapping and your cocaine, cocaine tongue you get yeah. nothing done right which is interesting that they put that lyric in appetite even though the song isn't on appetite uh-huh yeah but again too I mean, you know talk about some of the complex um vocal melodies I and mean, that's the tongue twister of, of a line to sing <laughs> so it, it's cool i mean you know that shows you know a, a songwriting level and skill that um maybe other bands you know of this era didn't really uh, have okay so i'm going to be the contrarian on this one i don't okay. think this is a particularly great song like to me this is sort of like a generic guns and roses one if you had like a you know a computer programmed to like here are all the elements of guns and roses and this is what they do and so you know make a generic guns and roses song like i mean that main riff that you know okay that's like the basic most generic most simple flyed guns and roses riff idea that they have you know it's kind of cliche and like this is a song that when they play it live i kind of go like all right like maybe it's time to go to the bathroom or get a drink or buy that mm-hmm. t-shirt or something because like you know and and i think axel for whatever reason sounds particularly grating on the song like his voice and then he goes into the whole diatribe about don't forget to call my lawyer with your ridiculous demands and it oh, just yeah. it comes across as being kind of petulant i i do think that the line that ironically they put on appetite with your bitch slap rapping and your cocaine tongue you get nothing done is the best line in the song by far mm. like i think it's a great line because it manages to kind of be critical of you know I, I i one assumes he's talking about a woman but you know woman's violence towards other women and hard drug use but in a completely politically incorrect kind of way he's not saying like that you shouldn't be slapping a bitch he's not saying <laughs> that you shouldn't be doing cocaine what he's saying is this attitude and this kind of behavior the end result is you are ineffectual as a human being you're not living up to your potential you're not getting done what you should be getting done and because of that we're not going to have a relationship you know what i mean so i think there's like there's kind of a sly subversiveness about this where you know john you've talked about like how interesting it is that even when guns and roses is doing an anti-drug song it's it's done from a a different perspective than saying like "Mm, drugs are bad okay you know yeah (laughs) 
they're bad in the context of the fact that they're not allowing you to function at your best. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, well, Guns N' Roses have walked the walk. You know what I mean? And so they're never actually saying they're not. I don't even think they necessarily do sort of anti-drug songs. They just, you know, are mirror hold mirrors up to the experience. And then we, you know what I mean? In many cases, sort of infer it or whatever. Right. Well, they, but they're not afraid to show the, the negative side of it, too. It's just that that's not the only side that they show. Right. Exactly. So. Yeah, and Dave, I see your, your I see your point too. I um, want to echo some of the things that Dave was saying about the song. Yeah, for sure. Uh, that that main riff in the verse. I mean, it's the cliche F sharp minor, you know, chord structure. I mean, with a crazy train or uh, from Ozzy or Nobody's Fault, Aerosmith. And anytime you want to write a song that has sort of like that sort of dramatic chord, you know, structure, just do something F sharp minor, you're going to sound, you know, heavy. But I think, from my perspective too, that just sonically. Uh, on the record, this song sounds great. The production is cool. It sounds huge. It doesn't live up to that in a live context for sure. Uh, but I think on, on the album itself, it's it's a well-produced track, and I dig it for you know the production it goes in. And again, there's so much great guitar playing in the song. And there's also one of those few times on this record where you get to hear a little bit of the interplay between Izzy and uh, Slash's guitar playing. Mm. You finally get to hear that, and that kind of pokes through and, and plays on this tune. So for that, those are some of the things that I appreciate about, about the tune. Fair point. Don't cry with alternate lyrics. I didn't really give a crap about this song. I mean, I, I like the ending harmony and acoustic guitar outro. That's really the only thing that kind of stuck with me. Um, I think at this point I was a little kind of sick of the album, but it didn't really do much for me. Good, Mike. I just didn't, I, I could probably count the number of times that I've listened to the song, this version uh, on my on one hand. I would always skip over it. It just, I thought it was pointless. I don't get it. And also, I think the, the one thing that, that sort of turned me off about the song was um, they use the same vocal overdub, I think it's after the second verse, uh, where I think on this version, the line is, you know, all love is real. But on the you know, on version one, on, after, uh, on the illusion one, uh, the line is, you know, times we had baby. And then Axel comes with that, baby. It's like they use the same overdub, but it doesn't work in this example mm. you know it's almost like it's two different vocal approach or two different lyric approaches that don't really meld and that kind of stood out to me i thought well you know if you're going to do a different version of the song then don't add that that same vocal over that was on on the first version if it doesn't work they could have just taken pause and said okay maybe that doesn't work take that out and if you're gonna do the second version of the song make it different to that level in a way you know with that level of detail it was, it's, a, it's a minor point it, it, it still bugs me when i hear that song but, uh, Really it doesn't work for me. You know, I would say, hey, where's the fight? Maybe we should pull that vocal over the out of this. But it, you know, it's nitpicking, of course. Sorry. Yeah. No, I, I agree with you guys. I don't think it's it seems really indulgent to do another version of this song. Like I don't even know if we needed one version of the song because I feel like their <laughs> their songwriting had moved beyond it. Like I think that that the chorus is really great melodically, but you know, are the lyrics that different? Not really. I mean, there's a line about, I washed the blood on your hands. That's kind of interesting, but it doesn't seem like it would have been that hard to do to take a lyrical pass and take the best of the lyrics uh, between the two versions and make them cohesive and just mm -hmm. put it on one record instead of in a completely separate version, which 
as you pointed out, really isn't that different and you know, maybe overall isn't even that great a song. So yeah, I'm, I'm with you guys. And, and to that point too, I mean, if you have all these, you know, we'll call them great and because obviously you know, you write songs and you know, they, they're great ideas. If you have all these ideas for other lyrics you know, for the verses, then write a whole other song. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, good point. Come up, yeah. come up with a different chorus. You know, I'm sure you can come up with a melody that would work, but you know, Instead of just sort of you know, force feeding, you know, extra verses that you have in another version of the song, it it seems, I don't know, it's it kind of, it, it's it's pointless. <laughs> it take, it takes away like you know, which one am I supposed to like better? I I don't want to make I don't want to have to make that decision. <laughs> Give me one version of the song that you think is the one. Yeah, this might be the function of no one ever told Guns N' Roses no <laughs> on this album. You know what I mean? Right. Right. Yeah. So final song on the record, My World. Ah, uh, whatever. I mean, <laughs> I heard they were all on shrooms when they wrote it or whatever. I don't know. My my notes here say why. Like what what's the point? I don't I mean I, I get it, but it's not Guns N' Roses. I mean, you know, you can make a you know a funky loop out of a woman's orgasm sound, but like that's just too easy. You know what I mean? I don't know how to explain that, but it's like, if you're going to use that, if you're going to use the sounds of a woman having sex, don't use it as like that, the part of the loop to create the beat. Like, use it as a, as a punctuation or something like that. It just, for, I don't know. It just, it just seemed like a 12-year-old was given a sampler. And that's what they came up. And then no parental <laughs> supervision. And that's what they came up with. You know what you know what I mean? Let's go get my older brother's porn collection. Let's make this whip sound. I'm gonna tell him how crazy I am. You know what I mean? And it was uh, it's just bullshit. Uh, I hate it. I, I hate it. <laughs> Mike, your opinion. Uh, I, I couldn't stand it straight away. I mean, it's, it's no secret I'm not a fan of samples or anything that sounds you know slightly industrial and sounds completely ignorant when it comes to that genre but it, i was turned off just by the the sonics of it straight away i i didn't get it i think it's pointless um you know much like oh there's that weird backwards sort of almost industrial kind of sound i think at the end of uh death leopards uh pyromania there's almost like a backwards loop or something you know yeah i mean a good album is a good album if you, if you got a good i don't want to cut you off now, but like if you have a, a collection of songs that stands up on its own like an album like you know, Hotel California or, or whatever. I mean, you don't need something like this is going to take away from what might be a, a collection of you know, good songs on a, on a really long record. What are we looking at? 14 tracks on this record? Yeah. I just, I, I didn't get it. I think it's pointless. If, if they're kind of show that they're going to go in another direction on the next record, okay, so be it. If that's a tease, I get it. But I, I found it uninteresting. Well, apparently he's super influenced by Nine Inch Nails. Like he was like all into Nine Inch Nails, Nine Inch Nails open for Guns N' Roses on tour. Now, this might not be the popular opinion in this group, but that Pretty Hate Machine, the first Nine Inch Nails album, is to me one of the best albums ever made. And I know I that it. it's, it's brilliant. Yeah. yeah. I know that it comes off as being industrial and that kind of stuff, but it shows one of the issues, and I, I discovered this last year with uh, teaching virtually as an art teacher and teaching digital art, you can literally throw the fucking kitchen sink in. You know what I mean? Like when you're doing things digitally, because you can just do anything. You know what I mean? And so 
Axel was just doing anything. Trent Reznor knows how to write a song with the, with the palette that he's given. He realizes he has all this stuff that's open to him, but he understands how to manipulate it so that it doesn't come off like, can't touch this, where you can obviously hear that it's a riff bite from Super Freak. You know what I mean? Like, I know I'm all over the place, but I'm just saying, like, there's, there's a definite difference between the use of digital media between the two of them. Well, okay, so it's interesting that you say that because the first time that I ever heard Nine Inch Nails was when I went to see the Use Your Illusion tour, and that was the music that they were playing. Like, I think they played the entire mm -hmm. album uh, in between, like, Skid Row uh, opening up and then the, like, two-and-a-half-hour gap before Guns N' Roses <laughs> went on after midnight. Um, so I got to hear the entire album, you know. Um, and this was, like, right in that era where you had bands like Ministry and Skinny Puppy and then, yeah, Nine Inch Nails that were that were bringing industrial like to the forefront and i think that it's interesting that bands like guns and roses and axel in particular had their finger on the pulse that they knew that this was something that was new and cool and they you know were trying to promote it and you know much the same with like nirvana right i mean people forget that guns and roses wanted nirvana to open for them and Nirvana didn't want to do it because they didn't want to be associated with Guns N' Roses, but not the other way around, you know. So, I mean, Guns N' Roses actually really had their finger on the pulse of what the next wave of popular music was going to be in a lot of ways. And I do think that, you know, if you look at this, is this a great song? No, obviously not. It does mm -hmm. feel kind of misogynistic almost in cells you know with the line about like do you understand your sex you ain't been mind fucked yet and you know mm -hmm. guess what i'm doing right now and it's just yeah it, it seems kind of silly and immature but if you just look at it as a tip of the hat you know to like hey we recognize this type of music and this is going to be the next big thing i think you know that's the only way to kind of look at this song positively much in the same way you could look at you know kiss calling their album love gun as a tip yeah. of the hat to the sex pistols you know oh, it was yeah. it was like okay yeah we we're, we're hip to the next big thing and we think it's cool and so this is our little acknowledgement of it you know yeah all right i'll buy that but it's still dumb yeah. <laughs> well, again, Dave, you're always great at finding something positive. <laughs> and I admire that and appreciate that about you. So I, I appreciate it for that, for that reason alone. Um, I do have a question, though, for the group. Um, you know, compared to these you know, records, you want to call it that, to uh, other artists like The Stones that released Exile, which is basically a double record, and uh, Max Husk is a double album. I mean, granted, these. The song lengths on, on this record are way beyond anything that was on uh, you know, Exile or uh, Tusk. But I just wonder, you know, if anybody's seen anything in terms of, you know, what the plan was. Did they really want these albums to sort of compete with each other and then have one be more successful than the other? Or why didn't they just make it one cohesive record and just release it as user illusion? Why, why did it have to be two? I, I've never seen anything about a discussion about what, what the purpose was in releasing a, a, a two different album format. Yeah, I, you know... I think 
Sebastian Bach talks about this, that originally the intent was to simply make it one album. And then okay. they had so much material. Um, and then Axel came up with the idea, no, it's going to be a double record. And he didn't want to make it one double record where it like sold together because at the time, like at Tower Records and places like that, if you had an album that was uh, a double record tied together, it would be put like behind the counter because it was twice as much and you'd have to ask for it. And he wanted people uh... to go out and be able to physically hold it and inspect it. So that's why they they split them up like that. Um, you know, I, I think part of the problem was that they had songs that were like, back off bitch or like don't cry that were too good to completely discard because it felt mm. like they were throwing away a piece of themselves that while it didn't reflect who they were now they wanted to get out there in some form but at the same time maybe weren't in the same league as as and, and the same headspace as where they were at currently so i think that's partially also i think it was a way for them to distance themselves from appetite even more you know because okay. like you know they knew they were never going to be able to top appetite for what it was so you know putting out a double record at the same time was that much different than appetite i guess okay it could have been a diversionary tactic too in a way like okay we know we're not going to top appetite so here we're just gonna throw all this material at you and you know, right. Like, if so, you can't dazzle them with brilliance, baffle them with bullshit. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I think there is a lot of that there. I mean, I think it's sophomore slump, and they're like, we'll just give them as much as we can to show, you know, that we can, I guess. Yeah, so, that was the, the, the industry vibe. I mean, the word at the time amongst the industry was there had been such a delay between albums because they just didn't have the material. Like, they couldn't come up with strong material to follow up appetite and you know whether or not that's true i mean you know you 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 decide but there was this huge gap and then slash mm. talks about like oh most of the material on these records we wrote in like a couple of nights at my house <laughs> you know? and you know i'm sure that that's somewhat yeah. of an exaggeration because obviously some of these songs they had had for years but yeah there i think there was kind of a desperation about like how do you top the biggest selling debut album of all time that is both fan acclaimed and critically acclaimed at this point? Mm -hmm. And we have mentioned uh, you know, magazines uh, you know, in the example of Get in the Ring. I think one of the magazines that wasn't mentioned was Rip Magazine. And I'm going to try to find it, but there, I have an issue of Rip Magazine where they interview, I think it's either Axel or Slash, and they ask, you know, okay, what, what's the status with the new record? And they say, okay, well, the album's going to be called Use Your Illusion. There's no mention of one or two. And right. This is probably like 1990, I guess. One of these albums, about 99, 91. Yeah, nowhere do they mention it's going to be, you know, two albums or, you know, double records or saying the title is Use Your Illusion, period. No one or two. But at the same time, too, the reason I bring this up is, you know, I have a copy of the original versions of uh, the Illusion albums, right? It's essentially two discs uh -huh. you know, for, for one record. So compare that to Exile, where it'd be just two discs and you got the, you know, the whole double album there. Maybe it was just like physically impossible to have an album where you had you know four discs mm. in, in one album. You know, maybe it's just like a song spacing there, a sequencing thing with vinyl. Who knows? You know, because CD that would be an issue, but vinyl that, that would be it's definitely you know, a packaging issue and a weight issue with you know, distribution. So who knows? There, there, there's obviously you know 
this is getting technical, but there, there's obviously other reasons other than the fact that you know, they had too much material to put out uh, for one record. Well, also, and, uh, they probably got paid more, yes. right? Oh, I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. I didn't even think of that. Jeez. I mean, contractually, the way that record contracts work, it, I'm not sure that they got paid double because like a lot of contracts are, are sort of worded so that you get paid per X number of songs on the album. And if you want to put more songs on the album, that's okay, but you're not necessarily getting paid up front for the additional songs, but I'm sure they got more doing two single albums. Probably. Yeah. Yeah. Wise move uh, financially and business wise. Yeah. Okay. Just let it bring it up. Yeah. So final thoughts. Um, <laughs> I mean, I, I'm surprised that I like this better than one because one, I was literally like, this is, uh, you know, this is bullshit. I never really liked Guns N' Roses. Now this really just proves it. But this album is actually pretty good. I'm glad I heard it. You know what I mean? Like, it's not, it's, it's definitely a better album than, than Use Your Illusion 1, at least in my opinion. Uh, for me, I'll just say, again, it's always fun to, to rediscover music and sort of go with the fine-tooth comb with you guys. It's, it's really fun to do that. You really, I, I learn a lot through the process, and it, you know, it reminds me, too, of you know, how much I need to get back into learning new guitar licks. But there are a ton of great solo licks to learn you know, from this record from, on Slash's part. Um, you know, so inspirational and fun. And overall, you know, I'm reminded of you know, how these albums are sprawling and adventurous. So there's some good stuff and some stuff that's not so good. but. Uh, Fun to revisit and fun to be a part of the process of reviewing these things with you guys. They're doing a you know theme day for Jack's band camp like okay. a month ago, and one day is either '80s or '90s day, and okay. literally, probably one third of the band shows up with Guns N' Roses T-shirts on, as if it's some you know what I mean. And I even have this. Um, I was explaining what this podcast is to um, another teacher who just got hired. She's in her 20s or whatever. And she's like, yeah, my dad was a big Guns N' Roses fan. So it's sort of a lot of people love this freaking band. And I feel like I missed the boat on it. But, um, you know, maybe I'm catching up now. But it's interesting how much of a cultural impact this band is. I mean, so many people love them. Yeah, well, because I think they straddled that line between like kind of disposable sunset strip hair metal uh, and actually having a, a heart and a soul and a level of uh, creativity and virtuosity and uh, things to say musically and lyrically that you, you wouldn't expect to come from that genre that, you know, they had a lot more depth than yeah. your, you know, Winger, Warren, Slaughter, you mm -hmm. know, any of those bands. Um, but I, I'll, I'll leave the final word to to Sebastian Bach. I'm going to rip it right off of that 33 in a third RPM podcast where he said that the sound of Appetite was a band with nothing, a band that was completely broke and, you know, had nothing to lose. And the sound of Use Your Illusion is the sound of a band that has way too much money, that has, you know, <laughs> seen their dreams come true like tenfold in a matter of a few years. And that experience, mind-blowing as I'm sure it was, 
is probably hard to relate to for the average person that hasn't been through it. And so I think if these albums are harder to relate to than, say, Appetite for Destruction is on a mass level, that's probably why. Because this band had been through an experience at that point that was completely unlike, you know, maybe any other band in history and certainly 99% of humanity and they're trying to make mm-hmm. sense of it. So, you know, um, but there's some brilliant, brilliant moments on these albums um, that, you know, make them worthy of still listening to and talking about 30 years later. Yeah, yeah absolutely. absolutely. All right. Well, on that note, I guess we'll be back next week, hopefully to talk about the spaghetti incident. Mm-hmm.